ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It seems these days as if the world is split into two, when it comes to weather, I mean. During the middle of the year, June to September, it's the Northern Hemisphere's time to swelter and bake. And then from around December to March, well, that's when the Southern Hemisphere gets its turn to sizzle and burn. Three out-of-control bushfires are continuing to burn in Western Australia, threatening lives and homes. Hello, Anthony Fennell here with a future tense episode about heat, extreme heat, and the urban environment, and what we can do to stay cool. Cooler, at least. Now, there are many good things about living in cities, which is why currently around 50% of the world's population reside in an urban area. But if you're looking for a place to escape the heat, cities are not your answer. So the urban heat island effect is how cities tend to be several degrees warmer than the surrounding countryside. And that is actually more pronounced at nighttime. And that's because cities and all of the materials, the built environment, the roads, the concrete, the buildings, all of this artificial surface stores heat throughout the day and then releases it more slowly at night. And so cities tend to be several degrees hotter than the surrounding countryside, mostly at night. Of course, no two cities are alike, and the urban heat island effect is going to be more of an issue for some urban areas than for others. It all depends on how many cars you have, how much concrete and glass there is, and just the sheer size of the population. If you've been to Singapore, you know that the commercial heart is found in Orchard Road downtown, We've made some measurements comparing temperatures there with the tropical rainforest that rings the urban metropolis. On average, the temperature differences can be about four to about four and a half degrees Celsius. But the maximum difference that we've measured is about seven degrees. So if it's 30 degrees at night in Orchard Road, it's about 23 degrees in the tropical rainforest surrounding it. Urban resilience expert Winston Chow. It is partly due to the very rapid urbanization. We've gone from a a jungle, so to speak, until a a metropolis over 50 years. Uh, About half of that warming rate is due to the conversion of rainforests into the buildings, the roads, and all the uh, waste heat generated from traffic and air conditioning. But about half of that warming comes from um, global warming itself, from climate change that uh, all of us, uh, regardless of where we're at, we're facing right now. Now, I mentioned earlier that currently half of humanity lives in an urban area. But that number is set to climb to 70% by the year 2050. So the urban heat island effect is a growing problem. Rushard Nanavati is with the Rocky Mountain Institute, and he's the co-author of a 2021 report called Beating the Heat, a sustainable cooling handbook for cities. Cities are warming at something like twice the rate of the rest of the planet is truly catastrophic. And we're talking about non-linear risk here. So, you know, wet bulb temperature, which is a combined measure of heat and humidity of 35 degrees Celsius is not just actually worse than 30 degrees Celsius. It's a wet bulb temperature that actually breaches the survivability threshold. It's very literally the difference between life and death. 
So the nature of that nonlinear risk and the fact that this problem is so severe and getting so much more severe in our cities was really the sort of impetus behind the effort. The effort being to try to help cities essentially address this problem in a comprehensive and holistic way. Our cities are, are much, much more problematic than the rest of our environment when it comes to extreme heat. And so a warming world is a challenge, obviously, in, an, in a number of different ways. But when you consider the fact that over two thirds, nearly three quarters of our population is actually going to be in these environments that are especially vulnerable to heat, that's obviously of, of massive concern. And it's worth noting that urban heat, like most environmental problems, disproportionately hurts our poorest and most vulnerable people. So if you look at a map of urban heat stress, so the urban heat island effect, and overlay it with a map of household wealth, you'll see that the greatest areas of heat stress are the areas which typically have the highest rates of poverty. And this is a pattern that repeats itself all over the world, India, China, the US, Latin America. And so, you know, of all of the environmental justice issues that we're confronting as a planet, this is, I would argue, among the most severe as well. And therein lies the problem. What can we do about it? One of Rushad Nanavati's key recommendations is for better government coordination, and he says that involves appointing what he terms a chief heat officer. What does someone in that position do? Well, let's find out from the City of Melbourne's Tiffany Crawford. So the City of Melbourne has been working on its heat-safe city principles and one of those is to prioritise the most vulnerable members of our community in decisions about heat risk. In Australia, heat kills more people than any other kind of natural disaster. And I think that fact probably isn't well known. Part of our role is about getting that story out to the, the public and also improving the way that we as a council at the City of Melbourne deal with extreme heat, with better planning and coordination and making the necessary changes to cool the city. We know that people without air conditioning or the ability to escape the heat are typically those who are older or economically disadvantaged. And we've been speaking to our community in Melbourne and heard some stories about people sleeping under trees or in stairwells of their housing in order to escape the relentless heat in a heatwave overnight. And that's unacceptable. What sort of challenges do you face given that you're dealing with multiple stakeholders when we're talking about heat and the urban environment? Well, we need to ensure that we're thinking about everybody in our community, whether they be a resident or a visitor. We get a lot of visitors in Melbourne, given that we're a capital city. And we also need to take into consideration our small businesses who can find the economic impacts of extreme heat quite devastating. So, it's a multifaceted issue. And then the other component, if we turn our minds to that longer term element, is around ensuring that we're planning the city for the future and considering future generations. You know, internally at the City of Melbourne, we are really focused on delivering that coordinated approach to the way we deliver our city and our services. And that's really important. So we've got a team of people working on this together as well as on all of our climate actions. So this is something that's really important also to our councillors. They declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in 2019, recognising the significant impact on the community already and the changing context within which we are delivering both our services and our city. So that's the experience so far in Melbourne. Now let's go back to Singapore, 
which is both a city and a state. There, they talk about taking a whole-of-government approach to the issue. Winston Chow again. It does start with individual ministries, individual stakeholders being aware that there is a heat problem and what to do about it requires cross-silo thinking and integration and partnerships. So our new financial district in Marina Bay, the buildings, are, the skyscrapers are sort of staggered in terms of height. So it's not a uniform height. But the differences in height between buildings, they can allow for upper level winds to be captured and brought down to pedestrian level. Uh, this is one way where smart urban design incorporated at the planning stage for a precinct can help to cool the environment. We also implement a lot of the important heat adaptation measures that the Cooling Singapore Initiative has been studying for the past six years. One of which is the importance of green infrastructure nature-based solutions in terms of large park spaces, in terms of green roofs and green walls. There's a lot of park spaces. There's a lot of street trees as well that in our Cooling Singapore research we find to be extremely critical for reducing heat risk for pedestrians. Planting more trees might seem like an obvious thing to do in an urban environment stressed by heat. But trees are potentially both saviours and victims when it comes to climate change. Researchers in the United States recently found that more than 40% of saplings planted in the city of Boston died within seven years. So understanding why trees die and which have the highest survival rates in urban environments is crucial. Renee Parker-Pumachis is a plant ecophysiologist at Western Sydney University. When I first came to Western Sydney University, I joined a project called the Witch Plant Wear Project. And I ran a series of glasshouse experiments where we stress tested over 100 different plant species for their physiological tolerance to both heat stress and to drought stress. So this was to help provide recommendations of climate ready and tolerant species that we can use for our cities, as well as some of the vulnerable species. And then more recently, I've been looking at trees actually growing in cities as opposed to the glasshouse and looking at how some of our recent extreme heat and drought events that we've had in southeastern Australia have affected our urban trees. And so looking at which of those tree species are more vulnerable and which are more tolerant and how we can use plant functional traits such as leaf size and wood density to help us identify and predict which species will be more tolerant in the future. In Australia in recent decades, there's been a push to plant more native trees and replace the imported varieties that were popular in the 19th and 20th centuries. There's been a sense that indigenous trees are hardier and better suit the environment. But what does Renee's research suggest? So it seems that in general, perhaps, that native trees are a bit more heat tolerant here in Australia, but you can get exotic tree species that are very heat tolerant. And in fact, they've been bred that way on purpose. And so these species can still be used into the future and they seem to have survived my research, for example, in, in Western Sydney, where it's been quite hot in the last few years. We've found that some exotic species do better than some native species, but it all depends on the pairs that you're looking at, really. 
And how do you determine if you're, uh, you know, civic authority, you're in charge of tree planting in an urban area? How do you determine what trees to plant and in what kind of formations? Historically, urban planners have tended to plant kind of the same species, often along a one street, you'll see one tree species planted down and that we've liked that uniformity of, you know, height and shape and going forward that maybe that's something that we can think about changing as one thing that might help to make our cities more resilient. And that if we have two or three species planted within the tree, maybe alternating or something, then that would be a better way to protect in case one species fails, and maybe it won't just be because of heat, maybe it will be because of a, you know, exotic pest that's come in or, or you know, maybe that species will be less susceptible to drought or, you know, there are a number of things that can cause trees to fail. And so I think increasing diversity is an important one. What are some of the other ways in which trees within an urban environment can be supported when it becomes too hot, when we've got conditions of, of heat wave or drought? So our latest research has found that water access is one of the most important things that can help trees to survive during heat waves. And so that could just be increasing irrigation if there is water available, or it could be coming up with smarter urban planning or engineering solutions right from the beginning of when trees are are initially planted and put in that maybe the designs are created so that more water can be stored underground and that tree will have access to more water on hot days. These are what you call passive irrigation storage pits, is that correct? Yes, so that is one solution that some suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne are now using. These are still in in kind of the research and testing phase, but we think that this could help the species that are less heat tolerant to be able to survive on hot days and also perhaps to grow faster too. And these are what, just underground reservoirs of water, runoff water? Yes. So they'll capture and store stormwater when rain falls and then it will be held in kind of these underground trenches or pits that the tree roots can access. Renee Pakapamachis, underground water storage is also being used as a form of cooling for both commercial and residential dwellings. Rushad Nanavati has been following the development of what are called district cooling systems, and he argues they have enormous potential. In a traditional air conditioning system, the main equipment, so the chillers that actually produce the cool, so to speak, have to meet the maximum theoretical energy demand during the hottest times and the hottest days of the year. So you think about a commercial building as an example, where you're air conditioning during the day and shutting things off at night. And air conditioning, obviously, only during some days of the year. So most of the time, these systems are operating at well below their capacity. And anytime you have equipment that is operating well below its sort of rated limit or its capacity, it means low performance and low efficiency. So if you can find a way to decouple energy supply from energy use, If you can somehow create and store that cool when energy is cheap and abundant and then use that cooling when you actually need it, you don't need as much capacity. You don't need as big a system. And that's essentially what a district cooling system does. And the way it works is that you essentially serve many different buildings with a single central chiller plant combined with a network of pipes. 
And that does a couple of things. It enables you to size the system for the highest aggregate load at any given point in time, as opposed to the sum of the individual building loads. So different buildings have different cooling schedules. Office buildings need cooling during the day, homes need it at night. And the district system essentially helps you take advantage of those differences. The second thing it does is that it uses natural heat sinks and thermal energy storage, like water or ice, which enables that decoupling of energy use from energy supply. And the other thing that you can do is you can get creative. You can incorporate multiple sort of energy vectors or energy technologies in addition to electricity, like solar cooling, which is you know, directly converting energy from the sun to powering an alternative refrigeration system or cycle using waste heat as an energy source. It enables you to serve that cooling need at the lowest life cycle cost, the lowest energy consumption, the lowest emissions, and the least contribution to that urban heat island effect. So district cooling, you really want it to be the default technology choice. And there's ways to, in some cases, to even retrofit it to existing buildings or existing neighbourhoods. And this is an approach that is being employed in cities like Paris or Toronto, for instance. Yeah, a bunch of cities, many of them in Europe. So in Europe, Barcelona, Lisbon, London, Stockholm, Helsinki, Copenhagen. And in many of these cities, they actually combine district heating and cooling systems. Singapore is, I think, the most prominent Asia-Pacific example. And Paris' system is, is pretty cool. It's an underground network that's, I think, over 50 kilometers long. It's right under the historic center of the city. It's serving over 500 buildings and not just any buildings. These are buildings like the Louvre, the Paris Opera, the National Assembly, the Ritz Hotel. So it draws water from the Seine, from the river. It delivers that water to six cooling plants that are all connected. These are essentially your heat exchange system. And then it pumps the cool water through this network of underground pipes, this 50 kilometers of pipes to all of these buildings that use it instead of using individual air conditioning systems. And it even allows for interseasonal thermal storage. So really cold water is stored in these underground tanks during the winter. And that basically gives you cooling capacity that can be used when the city heats up during the summer. Getting creative with engineering. Rushad Nanavati. So we can develop new technologies to help deal with the effects of increasing heat. But we can also save a lot of money and effort by thinking ahead about how to future-proof our existing machinery. My name is Paul Holdridge. I'm the Director of Industrial Transport and Energy with BSR. BSR is a sustainable business network and consultancy focused on creating a more just and sustainable world. And we work with businesses to help them develop better sustainability programs. A lot of the equipment that we have out there was designed 5, 10, maybe even 30 years ago. Many of our rail lines have been there for decades. Even the air conditioners and other things that keep our homes cool or other appliances like backup generators, these are designed several years ago against standards that were designed even years before that. The issue is that the extreme heat that we're seeing is happening much more frequently and much higher levels than anticipated. And the standards and the designs that equipment uh, were built and tested against just aren't keeping up. 
Some of the things that we see in extreme heat conditions are roads buckling. We see rail lines twisting. We see bridges that can warp and crack and potentially fail. And when there's extreme heat, airplanes may not be able to take off because they may not be able to meet their takeoff requirements. And that might mean that they would have to take off passengers or take off cargo or even just wait until it's cooler for them to be able to take off. Another aspect that we might see here is airports needing more runways or bigger areas and needing to completely rethink transport infrastructure and the air infrastructure as temperatures get hotter. Infrastructure is in place for a very long time. Bridges are meant to last decades, and they don't always account for the temperature changes and the levels of temperature that we have today. And there's a lot more potential for failure than was expected. So I presume then we need to to rethink the standards, but we also need to think way into the future about how long infrastructure is actually going to last, how long we want it to last, and what kinds of threats in the the future it might face. Absolutely. And at some point, you have to strike a balance between what condition are you designing for and what do you want the equipment to be sold for? What price, what cost is there? we're going to have to start building more cost into our systems to be able to survive more extreme conditions. Many of these things are achievable. We can build roads that withstand very high or very cold temperatures. We can build machines and other equipment that can survive this. But one, it will take time. The standards need to catch up. The equipment design and testing needs to catch up. But also, it's going to require new materials, uh, new ways of testing, new applications that we don't really necessarily have yet. And climate change is going to begin adding cost to our daily lives. And in the meantime, we have to think about retrofitting, don't we? Because some of this technology is just not going to last the duration. Yeah, we need to start thinking about climate resilience. We need to begin hardening all of our systems against potential risks and climate change. We work with businesses to think about how can they get their goods to market? What are some potential risks to their workers? How can they continue to operate under these extreme heat conditions? We do need to retrofit buildings. We need to harden our docks. We need to improve our railway systems in order to keep medical equipment and food and other supplies that we need continue running even under extreme heat conditions. And we also need to think about how people are impacted from that. We need to add new equipment for keeping workers cool or give them space to go to places where they can cool off. We also need to think about adjusting with the way that we live our lives day to day. It may mean that workers, sanitation workers or electricians or people building roads, they may not be able to work outside during times of the day. So we need to adapt and change to different temperatures. Which brings us very nicely to Ollie Jay a professor of heat and health in the medical faculty at the University of Sydney. Traditionally, there's been a lot of recommendations that have not necessarily been backed up by hard evidence. And so there's a lot of information out there, and it's important that we organise that information in a way in which people understand what they need to do and make sure that whatever they're doing is effective at reducing the health risk when they're exposed to extreme heat. And that, of course, it's important that people reduce how hot they feel, but it's also important that whatever people are doing, it it reduces how hot they actually are inside their body. And sometimes there's a bit of an uncoupling between how hot one feels and how hot somebody is in terms of how high their core temperature is, how much work their heart is having to do to keep themselves cool, and how dehydrated they're becoming. 
And that's what we're doing and really trying to drive the evidence based on those outcomes. What are some of the simple cost-effective actions that people can take to prepare for extreme heat? Well, one of the things that we're really focusing on is ensuring that people enduring heat waves, it's ensuring that we are advising strategies that are fit for purpose in those settings. So using low levels of electricity, using water in in a variety of different ways. So for example, one of the things that we're looking at is the way in which we can move air more and chill it less. Using things like electric fans, for example, we can increase the amount of heat that the body loses via a process called convection. And it also increases the rate at which sweat evaporates. And that could be quite an effective cooling strategy But when we reach air temperatures of around about 40 degrees Celsius, what we find, particularly in the elderly, is that fans actually aggravate heat strain. So they make it worse. It increases how hot you get. It increases how much work your heart has to do. It accelerates the rate at which people dehydrate. So it's really important to keep in mind that these strategies might be effective under some circumstances, but actually end up being detrimental under other circumstances. Now, you've been working to develop a heat stress scale similar to the UV index, the ultraviolet index, and also an associated app. Could I get you to tell us about that? Sure. So one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is that the way in which heat stress affects the human body is not just determined by temperature. Ambient temperature is actually measured in the shade. Those temperatures that we get on our weather forecasts or on our weather apps, that's measured in the shade. In fact, temperature in the, in the, directly in the sun can be as much as 15 to 17 degrees Celsius higher than it is in the shade. Wind, the amount of wind that's in the environment matters, and also how humid it is really matters. Now, asking people to integrate all that information to try to figure out what their own individual re- level risk is, is really tricky. So what we're doing is building this into a simple app and then displaying the individual level heat stress risk on a simple to understand scale. It also integrates other information like what the person's doing. So if you're doing a particular task, you can tell the app that and then it integrates that information and also the level of clothing that you're wearing because that can interfere with the ability to keep cool. It also enables the integration of other factors such as age because age is really important when it comes to determining the capacity to sweat whether you're on certain types of medication because that can interfere with thermoregulation and also whether there are other chronic diseases that you might have. And then it integrates all of this information into an easy-to-understand heat stress risk number or level of risk. The other thing that's really important is that it serves as a platform to provide evidence-based heat stress mitigation strategies. So we push information to the user on the best ways in which they can keep cool and reduce the risk to their health given the information that they've provided. We also have a forecasting function as well. So throughout the day, it'll it'll tell the user what their times of peak heat stress risk will be. So it enables people to plan their activities throughout the day. It also gives a forecast as much as five to seven days out. So if we're planning activities at the weekend, for example, you can reschedule those based on the level of risk that you think you might be exposed to. And where are you at with the development of that scale and the app? So we have a prototype app. One thing that was really important is that we developed the platform on which it's delivered in a way that makes most sense to those who are our target end users. So these are people in the community that might be at the greatest risk of heat stress during the summer. So we underwent over 150 consultations over the past six months 
with various members of the communities through focus groups to really get their feedback on the way in which we can best present this information and a format in which it should be laid out. And it's really striking as what we thought was a good idea uh, or the way that we would best uh, present that information before we did those consultations. What it looks like now is very, very different. But that's a really important point because the people that will be using this service had a say in shaping how it looks. And so hopefully we'll get maximum impact with that. So we have the prototype app. We're going to be pilot testing it across the community, focusing on Western Sydney, but we do have other people that are interested in testing it out over the course of this coming summer. And then we hope to then be able to roll it out at a greater scale over subsequent summers pending funding, of course. Professor Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney. Thanks to the team at Late Night Live for the interview with Winston Chow, which we used today. And special thanks to Kate Lawrence, who produced this edition of Future Tense. My co-creator is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.